Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth, show forth your praise, for you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do your good pleasure in Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and the whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Let's pray. Dear Father, most of all, we ask you to be with Pastor Don today as he preaches the word of the Lord. We ask a heart to be broken. We ask fences to be mended. We ask a gracious spirit. We ask mercy on one another. Please be with Pastor and Pam as they are enjoying recreation and revigoration. What we know not, please teach us. What we are not, only you can make us. And what we need the most, only you can provide. We ask these things and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be examining a portion of Scripture this morning out of John's Gospel. I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. You know, on Wednesday mornings, we often talk about the fact that the first three Gospels are called the ladies. Synoptic Gospels, because there's a lot of repetition in the first three Gospels. A lot of similarities In the first three Gospels, the Gospel of John is rather unique. It's the fourth Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 20, I'm going to be reading verses 24 through 29. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside. This time Thomas was there. He was present. He was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here 
and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas was a real historical person. A real historical figure. In fact, he is mentioned specifically three other times in this gospel. In chapter 11, in chapter 14, and in chapter 21. Thomas was a real historical personage, but that's not all he was. And is. He's a representative person. Now, what do we mean by that? He represents so many people today in relationship to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is what makes this passage so relevant to preach on, not just during the Easter season, but all year round. Now, I have divided this passage into four parts, beginning with the skepticism of Thomas. The skepticism of Thomas, we again... Read in verse 24, now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas was a skeptic when it came to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he was a skeptic in spite of the fact that the other disciples, in unequivocal fashion, dogmatically, without reservation, said, categorically said to him that Jesus had risen from the dead, for they had seen him. We have seen the Lord, verse 25. Now perhaps you're here this morning and you can really relate to Thomas. For you too have been told by numerous people, by numerous Christian people, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Maybe you've heard that from a colleague at work, or from your parents, or from your tennis partner, or from your children, or from your grandparents. You've certainly certainly heard it here. And yet you too remain skeptical. Interesting, not sure I buy into that. Interesting assertion, I'm not sure I ascribe to that. Now if that's the case, I want to share with you some important truths this morning. Number one, your skepticism does not negate the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Folks, whether or not you believe it, whether or not you subscribe to it, whether or not you ascribe to it. Some 2,000 years ago, the second person of the triune Godhead came to this earth. He became incarnate. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be held on to, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant It was made in the likeness of men. Philippians 2, 5 through 7. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 1 to 3, and verse 14. Christ Jesus came into this world, 1 Timothy 1, 15. Whether or not you believe it, whether or not you ascribe to it, whether or not you subscribe to it, some 2,000 years ago, the second person of the triune Godhead took upon himself flesh and blood. And whether or not you believe it, whether or not you ascribe to it, whether or not you subscribe to it, After living approximately 33 years, he died on a cross with real wood and real nails. And there he paid the penalty for the sins of lost humanity. And whether or not you buy into this, whether you ascribe to it, whether you subscribe to it, three days later, he arose from the dead. Physically, visibly, and triumphantly. And whether or not... You hold to this if you don't trust in Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation before the end of life's short day. You're going to wind up in a not very nice place. What the Bible calls the lake of fire. For you see, Jesus is the exclusive way. That's what he said in John 14, 6. I am the way. He did not say I'm one of many ways. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In John 10, 9, he said, I am the door. The apostles preached in Acts 4, 12, there's none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Your skepticism this morning does not negate the truth of the resurrection. Let me share something else with you. The skepticism of other unbelievers The anti-Christian rhetoric of other unbelievers, who many people have a very high regard for. Individuals like Christopher Hitchens, and Richard Dawkins, and Stephen Hawking, and Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook. Hollywood actress Jodie Foster. Their rhetoric... Their anti-Christian rhetoric does not negate the truth of the resurrection or of the gospel, generally speaking. Your skepticism does not negate the truth of the resurrection. The skepticism of other believers does not negate the truth of the resurrection or of the gospel, generally speaking. You know what else? The skepticism of unbelievers should never bother us. And it certainly should never cause us to hold back when it comes to our witness for Christ. Because folks, we're speaking the truth. You know, not everybody is going to buy what you have to say when it comes to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, when it comes to the gospel. Which reminds me of what took place in the city of Athens at Acts 17. Do you remember what took place there? Paul, on his second missionary journey, walked into the city of Athens, a very avant-garde city. 
the Paris of Antiquity. And he was looking around the city, he got teed off. You know why? Because he saw that the city was lined, the streets of the city were lined with false idols. You know, it was said it was easier to find an idol in Athens than it was to find a man. The streets were lined with false gods. And he's looking around and observing, he's getting teed off and more teed off. And yet he, went, he preached the gospel clearly, very definitively. And not everybody bought into what he said. Some mocked him. Some said, you know, it's interesting what you're talking about here. We'll hear you again on this subject later. And some believed. That's going to happen to us as we preach the gospel. Skeptics are going to mock us. Some are going to say, you know, we'll hear you again on this matter. These are some interesting reflections. I'd like to hear more of what you have to say. And some will believe. Irrespective of all of that, we need to keep hammering away. For again, what we are dealing with here is the truth. Now we see here next the appearance of the Lord Jesus. The appearance of the Lord Jesus. Actually, what we read about here was more than just an appearance. It was a confrontation. See, through this appearance of the Lord Jesus, Thomas was confronted, first of all, with the omniscience of Jesus. With the omniscience of Jesus. We read in verses 26 and 27, And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, This time Thomas was with them. This is a week later. Jesus came, the door is being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now, of course, the Lord Jesus was responding here to what Thomas said in verse 25. Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails. By the way, just as an aside, this is the only time in the New Testament where we read about nails that were put in Jesus' hands when he was on the cross. The only time. But the fact that it's in here confirms the inspiration and authority of the Old Testament scriptures. Specifically, Psalm twenty-two, sixteen: they pierced my hands and my feet. Unless I see in his hands the print of his nails and put my finger into the print of, my, into the, print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, how in the world did Jesus know that Thomas made this statement here in verse 25? I mean, Thomas did not make it in the presence of the Lord Jesus... And the other disciples did not tell Jesus that Thomas had made that statement. I'll tell you how Jesus knew that Thomas made that statement. He knew because he's the omniscient God of the universe. What does that mean? That means he knows all things. Hebrews 4.13 applies to Christ. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. 
Proverbs 15.3 applies to Christ. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Through this appearance, Thomas was first of all confronted with the omniscience of Christ, but that's not all he was confronted with. He was also confronted with the grace of Christ. Why is it that the Lord Jesus, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the second person of the triune Godhead, why did he come to this earth some 2,000 years ago and be born as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem? It was because of his grace. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. And why did Jesus hang on a cross and suffer and bleed and die for poor lost sinners? Again, it was because of his grace. And why did Jesus make this appearance to Thomas here? In order to bring him into faith in himself, again, it was because of his grace. Oh, how gracious Jesus Christ is. He's full of grace. That's what we read in John 1.17. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Christ is loaded with grace, which means what? Which means he's got grace enough for you. Christians sometimes sing marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, marvelous grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. Through this appearance, Thomas was confronted with the omniscience of Christ. And with the grace of Christ, you know what else he was confronted with? He was confronted with evidence for the resurrection, with hard, empirical evidence for the resurrection. Again, we read in verse 27, Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. You know, folks, this is one of the things that makes Christianity unique from every other religion in the world today. See, Christianity, unlike every other religion in the world today, is an empirical faith. It is rooted in objective, historical, verifiable evidence. And we might add, not in a little bit of evidence, not in a small amount of evidence, Christianity is supported by overwhelming evidence, by a mountain of evidence. Folks, the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ on that first Easter Sunday morning was empty. And had it not been empty, the moment the apostles started preaching the resurrection... They wouldn't have done so. They weren't even anticipating a resurrection. But let's just say for the sake of discussion that they started to preach the resurrection. When there was no resurrection, you know what the Jewish and or Roman authorities would have done? They would have gone to the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea where the body of Christ was laid. 
They would have opened the tomb. They would have produced the body and paraded it down the streets of Jerusalem and said to everybody, look, here's the body. What these apostles are preaching is ridiculous. Here it is. They couldn't do that. Well, of course they couldn't do that. The body was stolen. The Roman or Jewish authorities stole the body. Think about that for a moment. You know, there are actually people who believe that. The body was stolen. Are you kidding me? What reason would the Jewish or Roman authorities have? What motivation would they have to steal the body of Christ? They didn't want to start the Christian movement. They wanted to stomp out the Christian movement. No, no, you're getting me wrong. The, the disciples stole the body. Really? What motivation would they have to steal the body of Christ? Do you know what the disciples went through? for preaching the resurrection. If church history is correct, every single one of them, without exception, apart from John, was died a martyr's, a horrible martyr's death. And John was banished to the Isle of Patmos. Why would they steal the body? They had no motivation to do so. To preach a false resurrection. Now, the reason the tomb was empty is because Jesus had risen from the dead. And the tomb was not only empty that first Sunday morning, but Jesus made all sorts of post-resurrection appearances, not just here, but on so many other occasions, including on one occasion, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, to 500 brethren at one time. Paul goes on to say, of whom the greater part remain unto the present, but some have fallen asleep. And you know what Paul is saying there? Of those 500 brethren that Jesus appeared to on that one glorious occasion, most are still living, most are still alive, which means you can put them on the stand and interrogate them and see if they're El Netzo. Christ showed himself alive after his passion, Acts 1-3, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them for 40 days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, what this means for you this morning is this. It's absolutely irrational for anyone to reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, some people think that Christians are woolly-minded mystics. That you have to abdicate your intellect in order to become a Christian. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Christianity is the only intellectually satisfying Faith in the world today. It and it alone is a faith founded upon fact, as so many brilliant people have testified down throughout the years. Lord Lyndhurst, otherwise known as John Singleton Copley, who was considered to be one of the greatest legal minds in British history, said, I know pretty well what evidence is, and I tell you such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down yet. And Professor Thomas Arnold, who was appointed the chair of modern history at Oxford in England, he was the author of that famous three-volume work, The History of Rome, said, the evidence for our Lord's life and death and resurrection may be, and often has been shown to be satisfactory, 
It is good according to the common rules of distinguishing good evidence from bad. Thousands and tens of thousands of persons have gone through it piece by piece as carefully as every judge summing up on a most important case. I have myself done it many times over, not to persuade others, but to satisfy myself. I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them, and I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God hath given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Through this appearance, Thomas was confronted with the omniscience of Christ and the grace of Christ, and he was confronted with hard evidence for the resurrection, and he was also confronted with a command from Christ. Again, we read at the end of verse 27, Jesus said to Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but believing. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, that's Jesus' word to you. Do not be unbelieving. Get rid of your skepticism. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. See, based upon the evidence, the hard evidence, that's the only logical thing for you to do. And it's not only the only logical thing for you to do, it's the critical thing for you to do. For that's the only way you're going to get into heaven, through believing. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Romans 10.9. Well, we see here next the reaction of Thomas. The reaction of Thomas, and Thomas, verse 28, answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. You know, Thomas's statement here reveals that he moved from incredulity to confidence, that the unbeliever became a believer, just like so many others. Other unbelievers have become down throughout the years. Thomas's statement here reveals that he became a believer. And his statement here also gives us some insight into the nature of true saving faith. What does a true saving faith involve? Well, it first of all involves acknowledging who Jesus is. Thomas acknowledged here that he was God. It involves acknowledging what Jesus has done. Thomas believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. And it involves taking Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. As your personal Savior. Resting on him personally. You know, Thomas exclaimed here, my Lord and my God. Can you say that? Jesus is my Lord. He's my God. He's my Savior. You know, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2a, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Can you say that the gospel is your gospel? Jesus is my Lord. He's my Savior. He's my God. The gospel is my gospel. (laughs) 
Finally, we have here the declaration of Jesus in verse 29. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen. Listen to this. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know who Jesus is talking about here specifically? He's talking about Dennis. Dennis, stand up. He's talking about Harold McDonald. Harold McDonald, stand up. He's talking about Dr. Chris. Chris, stand up. Who else is he talking about? Stand up. If Jesus is talking about you here, stand up. Thank you. You may be seated. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. If you indeed have fall, fall into that category, you are truly blessed. You've first of all been liberated from the penalty of sin. In accordance with what we read in Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And in accordance with what we read in John 5, 24, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall never come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Well, you talk about being blessed. You've been liberated from the penalty of sin. You have heaven to look forward to, the glories of which are unparalleled. You have an inheritance, 1 Peter 1, 4, that is incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. You have the abiding presence of the God of the universe in the here and now. Hebrews 13.5 applies to you. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You have the promise of satisfaction in the here and now. Which is why Jesus could say in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. And he that believes in me shall never thirst. And why Jesus could say what he said to the woman at the well in John 4, whoever drinks of this water, this H2O will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Oh, everyone who thirsts, let him come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money. And without price, is it? Are you thirsty this morning? Drinks are on the house. You're so blessed. You've been liberated from the power of sin in your daily experience. You don't have to go back to heroin. You don't have to go back to meth. You don't have to go back to coke. You don't have to go back to alcohol. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? You have the privilege of prayer. You know, we could talk all, all morning about these things. The point is, we who have seen Christ, not with our physical eye, but with the eye of faith, are so incredibly, incredibly blessed. And one day we are going to see Jesus. Yes. With our physical eye. 
Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2. So the blessings for believers in Jesus Christ are just going to continue and continue and continue and continue. Are you a doubting Thomas this morning? Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails. Sorry, guys, I'm a skeptic. Can't buy it. If you're a doubting Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but believing. That's the only logical thing for you to do. And it's the critical thing. For as Jesus declared in John 8, 24, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You know, it's one thing to die a pauper. It's one thing to die all alone with no family around. It's quite another thing to die in your sin. Well, how'd you avoid dying in your sin? Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Amen.